Ephesians 2, 17 through 22. This is God's word for us to study today. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Will you pray with me? Father, again, we bow. And I don't know that we can ask it any differently. Please, God, do work that only you can do. And teach us well. Help us to learn and grow and to be the church. Our songs have talked about us being the church. Help us live as a faithful church. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. One of the most difficult periods in American history is the period known as Reconstruction. If you don't know what that means, Reconstruction is that era just after the Civil War when military fighting had ceased and when the Confederacy was dismantled and when the work began to be done to try to reunite a splintered nation. I'm going to bet that a lot of you are Civil War, you know, fanciest at some level. A lot of folks know a lot about the war. A lot of folks know a lot about President Lincoln and the assassination and the evils and the ugliness of the slavery that was in the American South. But not many folks that I know have taken much time to think about just how difficult it was once the war was over. Think about it. How weird would it have been for a former slave living in the South. I mean, legally, technically, these men and women had been set free, but they lived among a people who viewed them as something lesser. Former slaves were not necessarily going to be allowed to be property owners or did not have property. They, they didn't have formal educations. They were not going to be welcomed into society. Many of them were hated by people for no greater reason than the color of their skin. But that's not the only awkwardness. The relationships between people of the North and people of the South in general would have been very hard. See, Northerners saw Southerners as rebels who caused tremendous grief and damage to the United States. There were nasty-hearted Northerners who, sweeped, who swooped in to, do, uh, you know, to take advantage of the poverty and the hurt and the need that was there in the South. And people from both sides saw the others as still their enemies. The ones who were guilty of the deaths of their sons. The ones who were guilty of the destruction of their property. Um, I remember visiting Georgia once when I was younger and um, just thinking, you know, even there, there were spots where you could kind of tell the, uh, the North-South thing was still a real deal and it wasn't necessarily about um, the things people think of as much as it was about the hardships that the South faced during and after the war. Now, why talk about that? I think thinking about Reconstruction could help you and me to get our minds in the right place for what God is doing in the passage that we're studying today. See, you and I need to grasp that 
just because a person tells you, hey, your people are friends with another people group now, working that out in actual practice is not super easy. In the late 19th century, it was hard for former slaves and former slave owners to figure out how to get along. It was hard for union loyalists to learn how to deal with former rebels. And in the Bible, we see something that I think is similar. Because if it was hard for Yankees and Southerners to get along after the war, it was easily as hard for Jews and Gentiles to get along in the first century. Because see, to the Jew, everything he had ever learned involved separating himself from Gentiles. The Jew saw Gentiles as unclean, as, as foreign, as dirty, as enemies of God and enemies of God's people. And to the Gentile, everything he knew about the Jews was that they were a people who would not participate in society. They wouldn't participate in normal daily living. They looked down on everybody. They, they were not... The, 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 the average Gentile thought that the Jew was a danger to the Roman Empire and to society at large because the Jews would not worship the gods of the Roman or the Greek pantheon. You got to see how far apart were Jews and Gentiles, though, so that you can rightly marvel at what we learned last week. You see, first we learned last week, Gentiles, because we're a room full of Gentiles in here. I'm going to guess anyway, unless somebody who's ethnically Jewish has joined us that I don't know. Um, we would have been far off from God, separated from God, separated from God's people. Verse 12 says five things. We were separated from Christ. We were alienated from Israel. We were strangers to the covenants. We were without hope and we were without God. How's that for a set of labels to apply to yourself? We were by birth and by practice as far away from hope in God as we could have been. But then we learned God brought us near. Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled the law of God. Jesus died and Jesus rose from the grave. And Jesus brought the offer of salvation, not merely to ethnic Jews, but to all who would come to Jesus in faith. And then last week, finally, we learned that God made one new people. Jesus broke down what used to divide Jews and Gentiles when he abolished the ceremonial law. Jesus acted to destroy the hostility between Jews and Gentiles by reconciling both peoples first to God, but by making those two groups, those two separate, each other hating groups into one brand new nation. So Jews and Gentiles used to hate each other. Jesus says, no, 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 you're a new people and there is no distinction between the two of you whatsoever. And today we're just going to pick up where we left off. I'm going to give you two more main points today. There's probably going to be more you could write down, but two more key points. You can either call these points one and two or four and five, depending on how you think this flows from last week, okay? First point, God welcomes all through the gospel. Point number one is God welcomes all through the gospel. Look at 17 and 18 again. It says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Okay, I want to ask a question here. You guys have already been too quiet for me. Have you ever done something wrong and then found out that your wrong was discovered? 
maybe, maybe you broke something at home. Then you hear that mom knows. Ooh. Maybe, maybe you got a bad grade in school. And then somebody lets you know that somebody, some helpful person, maybe one of your siblings, told your dad. Maybe you messed something up at work and now you know the boss is aware. Maybe you ate one of the muffins on the counter that your wife apparently thinks are for somebody else. I didn't do that this week, but I thought about it. I want you to know. When things like that happen, though, it feels terrible, doesn't it? It's awful to know that you're guilty. It's awful to know that other people know that you're guilty. It's really awful to know that you're guilty, to know they know, and then not to know what's going to happen to you because of what's been done. For some of you, the entire sinking emotion could be summarized in the, se- in the sentence, wait until your father gets home, then we'll talk. Y'all ever have that experience? Yeah. Is it a good one? No. <laughs> when you know you're guilty and you know mom and dad or the boss knows, what do you want to know? Mom knows? What did she say? How did she act? Was dad mad? What's he going to do? Am I going to be forgiven? <laughs> if, you're, if you're a young enough child, you're thinking, is this the end? <laughs> well, the word he in verses 17 and 18 is still referring to Jesus. And Jesus came to earth. And Jesus did the work that he came to do. And Jesus came, it says, with a message. Now think about this. You're a Gentile. You were far off. You were separate from God. You had no hope. You were of a God-hating heathen people. You were a rebel with no idea of how to be made right with God. How would you feel to know, by the way, God has come with a message? It might not be a good feeling right away, huh? That could be terrifying. What if you were a Jew of the first century? Yeah, you had the law, but if you were a faithful Jew, you knew that if God comes, he is going to see your nation failing to follow the word of God in sincerity because the Jews were not being faithful to the word of God in the first century. So if you hear the Christ has come with a message, that should be potentially terrifying. Jesus came with a message. He came with a preaching. He came with a proclamation. What did he say? What message did he preach? Are we destined to be destroyed for our sin? The Bible says Jesus came and preached peace. What a glorious word. Jesus brought not the wrath we deserve, but peace. Jesus preached peace. Peace with God to both groups. The ones who were far off, you and me. The ones who were originally nearer. The Gentiles who had no hope heard a message of peace with God. The Jews who should have had hope but who were rebelling against God heard a message of peace with God. How? How did this happen? How could the Jew and the Gentile both hear a message of peace? Both heard the very same, never-changing, once-and-for-all gospel. So understand this, Christian. There is one message of peace. There's not a message of salvation of one kind 
for the Jew and one kind for the Gentile. That's Paul's message here. Now, wait a minute. In the Old Testament, Jews participated in rituals and sacrifices. And when Jews participated in those rituals and sacrifices, the Bible says they found forgiveness. But you guys already know, don't you? It was not the ritual and it was not the sacrifice that brought salvation to the Jew. The person from Israel, if he was saved, if she was forgiven by God, why? Why were they saved? Why were they forgiven? Was it because of the sacrifice? No, it was because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see, the sacrificed animal in the Old Testament did not have any worth to save somebody. Hebrews 10 opens the chapter by saying, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The animal sacrificed in the Old Testament ceremony, it pointed God to the sacrifice God knew he was going to make to save everyone he would save. It reminded, if, I mean, God doesn't need a reminder, but you get it, right? It was a testimony of the justice of God that would come. Now, it's more than that. It was a reminder to the Jew of the ugliness of sin. It was a reminder to us that sin brings death and we need the blood of a perfect sacrifice to cover our sin. But the blood of those sacrifices never bought anybody's salvation. Only the blood of Jesus has ever bought anybody's salvation. The Jews had regulations. They had ceremonies that made them look and live differently than all the nations around them. The food laws, the dress laws, the, har- the, the field planting harvesting laws, those all made the, the native Israelite rec- look totally different than any of the Gentiles around. And that separation was good because it kept the nation of Israel separate and insulated from outside infection until God brought the promised one into the world. But once Jesus came into the world, once the sacrifice of Jesus was made, the ceremonies were done away with. The ceremonies, even even the temple itself is a shadow of a greater reality. The Old Testament temple in all of its glory is a pointer to something that it stands for. It was a copy of something in heaven. It's a pointer to the plan of God. But there is and there has always been only one way of salvation in, for anyone in history and that is that the person who wants to be saved must be forgiven by the grace of God and ultimately we learn that anyone who is forgiven is only forgiven because of the perfect life, the perfect death, the perfect resurrection of Jesus. Jesus made the sacrifice that the temple offerings hinted would come. Jesus is the only one who ever satisfied the just wrath of God for sins. Jesus is the one and the only peace that we have with God, no matter where you come from. So Jesus came and preached peace. What is the peace preached? It's the simple, glorious gospel. God is holy. We have sinned against God. 
Jesus came to be the only way for us to be forgiven by God. And if you want life, if you want forgiveness, believe in Jesus. Believe that his life has to be your righteousness. Believe that his death has to cover your sin. Believe that he's alive and surrender yourself fully to his lordship. Repent, believe, be saved. That's the gospel. And when a person believes in Jesus, as verse 18 says, no matter what her past, she has access in the Son, by the Spirit, to God the Father. Do you see something being said there? There is only one God. He is triune. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the good news is that when any person of any background, with any history, no matter how ugly, no matter what your nation, it doesn't matter, when any person of any background comes to faith in Christ, that person is welcomed in the presence of the one God. It's like, it's like God gives you a, a special sealed certificate that gives you free entry into the king's throne room. If you have Jesus, the Spirit of God ushers you into the throne room of the Father forever. So the point here was God welcomes all through the gospel. No matter what your nationality, no matter the ugliness of your past, God will welcome anyone who will come through Jesus. And there's no other entry into the presence of God. But the entry that Jesus made is for anybody who will come. Come to Jesus. Be welcomed into the presence of God through faith in Jesus. Celebrate the fact that all peoples are made one new nation by the Spirit under the Father because of the finished work of Jesus the Son. Okay, we're going to finish the section up here, guys. We want to see the results for us, even we Gentiles, because of what Christ has done. Now, let me say this to you. Don't get tired of hearing me emphasize to you the miracle of God bringing Gentiles near. Why should you not get tired of that? Because God really emphasizes it here. He wants you to see the glory of what he's done to make one single people out of peoples who were so far apart formerly. So stick with me one more point, okay? Second point. God unites all for his glory. God unites all for his glory. Look at 19 to 22. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. These verses are beautiful. But you know what's happening here, guys? You know what I think is happening? I think Paul's excited here. I wish I felt like you were. But I think Paul's excited here. Why do I think Paul's excited, you ask? He keeps mixing metaphors. What's this? He starts by describing us as a family. Isn't that great? Christians, Jews and Gentiles, we get to be a family. Well, he thinks of a family, and what's a word for family? Household. We're a household. We're a family, we're a household. Thinking about households, it makes Paul think about a house like a physical house and how you build a house. 
which ain't the same as family, y'all. And the picture of a house takes Paul to a picture of another kind of building. Building a house is kind of like building a temple. And I like temples, and temples are important. And so Paul goes from family to household to house to temple to show us the miracle of the gospel uniting people from all over the globe in Jesus Christ. He's excited. He wants you to be too. Verse 19, he says that that the Gentiles... He draws a comparison between who we were and who we are now. He says, we used to be strangers and aliens. We were separate from the nation that is God's people. But if we have Christ as our Savior, we're no longer strangers. We're no longer aliens. We are now citizens of the new nation of God. Now, that metaphor has weight, friends. How many of you have ever lived in another country? A couple of you, right? And many of you who live in other countries have done so as a military person, which means you kind of just live in your own little insulated pocket of America in another country. But if you've ever lived in another country not on a military base, you will understand the significance of being an alien or being a citizen. See, my family and I lived for three and a half years in South Korea just after I graduated seminary. And I'll tell you, life in Korea for the most part was easy. It was fun. I loved what we got to do there. But there were times when I learned things and realized that for those who weren't Korean citizens, it was tough to live in Korea. I heard about people who were taken advantage of by unscrupulous employers, people that that when they came over said, okay, now that I'm employing you, give me your passport and I'll keep it. People that said, I said I would pay you this, but I'm only going to pay you that. Now what are you going to do? There were unscrupulous employers over there, let me tell you. But see, the workers that these people were cheating, they didn't think much of them because they're just foreigners. So what? And because these people were foreigners, not citizens, they had very little recourse with the government to fix their problem. See, think about it. Americans, if you live here in the United States, you know if somebody wrongs you, you're like, well, they can't do that. I'm going to go call these folks. And, and, and you know the channels to go through to make the, the wrong right, or at least where to start. But over there, non-citizens, they were stuck. I'm sure there were laws that were there to protect them, but the non-citizens had no idea what they were, and they had no idea who to talk to. It felt very hard for those folks. Non-citizens in Korea, people who were living there as foreigners, they weren't allowed just to stay in the country as long as they wanted. They had to leave from time to time. They weren't free just to pick any job they wanted to do. They had to work in accord with what was on their visa. And non-citizens in Korea, and this was true for me and my family as well as for anybody who was there, we knew we were outsiders. We, We were called foreigners I wasn't going to tell this story, but I will, because why not? (laughs) There was a Sunday after church. We went to a little restaurant and ate Korean food, which was really good and significantly cheaper in Korea than it is in America. And uh, a man across the table said to me, Pastor, do you know why Asians and, uh, like, Koreans and, and, and other Asians are smarter than Americans? And I was just certain I was being told a joke. I was not. He then shared with me how as they grow up and use chopsticks, the use of chopsticks and those muscles affects the development of the brain in a different way and that makes them smarter than us. 
What do you say to that, by the way? <laughs> I, uh, I did not point out you people put sweet potatoes on pizza. You guys fill chocolate dessert with bean paste. You're not smarter than us. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I just said, interesting. <laughs> Imagine, though, I mean, I was being told, you're different than me. In Christ, foreigners become citizens. The distinction is gone. The past becomes irrelevant. Even if my people hated your people before, in Christ we are now one new people. There is not your people and my people. There is only our people in Christ. Isn't that good news? Do you see why Paul's excited about this? Paul calls us members of the household of God. There's the family term. We're not just made into citizens of the same nation. We are made into members of the same family. Now, I'm going to understand that not all families are the same. Some families have great relationships. Some, eh, not so much, right? But when family is done right, when family is what family is supposed to be, there is a tie, there is a link, there is a love, there is a commitment to the family. You know, my children are quite different from one another. Have you guys noticed this already? I'm going to, I'm, I have ways to evaluate that, but I'm not going to do that in public. My children from time to time frustrate one another. My children from time to time could, in fact, manage to frustrate their mother. Feasibly, they could frustrate me. But I can tell you this. My children are my children. I love my children. I am committed to doing my children good as much as I possibly can. And no matter how different all of us are in my family, we will never not be family. Imagine God telling Jews and Gentiles that they are now one family. See, in years gone by, the Jew might have been cruel to the Gentile. The Gentile might have been cruel to the Jew. But now in Christ, they are one family, one household, one new people. The division is done away with. It's over. There's no longer a place between these people for dredging up the former animosity. Now, when Paul talks about a household, talks about a family, his mind jumps to, like I said, a house, a physical house. He says, we're not just a nation. We're not just a family. We are like a house. And this house is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. I think we all know that the foundation of a house is super important, right? If you have a bad foundation, what does your house do? Falls down. That's right. Here Paul says that the foundation of this household, this family, this nation, who we are, is the apostles and the prophets. Now, Paul is not here telling you that the people of God are founded upon a set of really super important extra spiritual people and their individual merits. 
What Paul's telling us is that the foundation of the people of God is the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. These leaders were given to the early church to communicate to us the glorious revelation of God. And so, what is the teaching of the apostles and the prophets? What is it? It's the Bible. It's the word of God Paul's actually referring to here. All Christians of every nation are a family. All Christians of every nation, every background are a house. And the house has a solid foundation, the perfect, holy, inerrant, sufficient, inspired word of Almighty God. You guys might not think this is a big deal, but think this. There's only one thing that can hold together Christians who come from different parts of the world. And that is that we have the same word of God upon which to stand. When I went to Korea, they put sweet potato and pickles on pizza. What could unite people that do things like that? We think differently. The Koreans around me had a Confucianistic culture. A Korean would ask you, your age almost immediately in a conversation in order to know whether you rank above them or below them based on culture. They, again, and I'm not trying to generalize or make us make a big culture thing out of this. I'm just trying to say we think differently. We, we, we look at things differently. There are practices that are considered normal among Americans that Asians think are just barbaric. They think we are loud and obnoxious and they're right. (laughs) How could those people who come from such different backgrounds ever be on the same page? The answer is that they had the same word of God upon which to stand. 2 Peter 1, 19-21 says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place till the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, Peter speaks of the words of the prophets being more fully confirmed. They are more sure, more steady than any experience, vision, or idea ever had by any man or any woman. The scriptures are the rock-solid foundation upon which we stand. The scriptures, rightly read, rightly interpreted, supersede any cultural difference whatsoever. You all need to know this. You say, of course we know this. No, you don't. Because we so easily, as a a church, as, as 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 a national church, not this local congregation we so easily let ourselves be led astray by culture instead of the word scripture ties us together as people who would have thought and believed completely differently scripture ties us together 
You cannot have a stable house without a sure foundation. And you cannot have a united people of God around the globe apart from Scripture. It can't be done. The inspired teachings of the apostles and the prophets are our foundation. So simple point here, church. Recognize our foundation, the solid ground on which we rest, is the word of God. So when cultures clash, we have to let scripture be our footing. When peoples say to us that we have to think a certain way because of your ethnic history or my ethnic history, you reject that in favor of the solid foundation of the word of God. No matter what somebody's history, no matter what their experiences, the word of God is the only sure, safe place to stand. So love the word, rely on the word, learn the word, submit to the word. That's part of being built together as God desires. But then Paul tells us Christ Jesus is the cornerstone of the house into which we're being built. So if the foundation of the house is important, The cornerstone, that's the most important part of the foundation. All the rest of a house is structured the way they built, you know, the, the way the construction Paul's talking about. All the rest of the building is structured around and dependent upon the cornerstone. So the lines of the house, where the walls go, the angles that they will take, the layout of the foundation, it all is fully dependent on the placement and the perfection of the cornerstone. So when Paul called the scripture, the apostles, the prophets, when he says that's the foundation of the house, he's not saying that scripture is superior to Jesus. Scripture is the word of Jesus. Scripture reveals to us Jesus. You cannot know Jesus if you don't know scripture. What scripture says, Jesus says. What scripture commands, Jesus commands. Jesus is God the Son. Scripture is the word of God. And by the way, if you want to know what Jesus thinks about a topic, you don't need to look in a Bible that has the words of Jesus in red letters to figure that out. The way you know what Jesus thinks about a topic sometimes is to look at what Paul wrote about it. Because Paul wrote inspired by Jesus. Does that make sense to y'all? Don't you dare overvalue one section of the Bible to another section because it's all the written word of God. But as a house, our ultimate, our final hope, our ultimate and final hope is Jesus. Jesus' perfection. He lived perfection, and we rest on that. Y'all, if Jesus did not live a perfect life, we're dead. Jesus died a sacrificial death to pay for our sins. If that's not true, we're dead. Jesus rose from the grave and is alive right now. If that's not true, we're dead. Jesus welcomes into the family of God people who come to him in faith and repentance. If that is not true, we are dead. And since the house is built on Jesus as the cornerstone... Every last part of the house is to be aligned to Jesus. And that means that no matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, American or Asian, white or black or brown or any other color you want to pick, you rest on the one cornerstone which is Christ. All Christians are in Christ. All stand on the foundation of the word of God. All of us are equally, perfectly connected to one another. Then 21 and 22 the picture of the house changes even more. Paul says this house with its perfect cornerstone, with its strong foundation is 
growing. How many of you have a house? How many of your houses are growing? I've seen it happen before, but it's weird, right? See, this is, this is a house, but it's still being built. And it's more than a basic house. It's a temple. What is a temple, you ask? In simplest terms, a temple is a place for a deity to live. In Ephesus, they had the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was huge. It was beautiful. It was marble and columns and gorgeous. And it was the place where, figuratively speaking, an idol lived. That statue that they worshipped was housed in the temple. It was a place of worship. It was a place for the deity to dwell. It was a place for Artemis to take a nap. And Paul says, we are a temple. The house is growing, and each of us is a stone being linked together with other stones to become a living home for God. Peter says the same sort of things, by the way. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 6 say, As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone, there's the cornerstone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Christians, we are being built into a single house for God. How's that for an image? There. There's no room in this construction for division based on what used to divide us, is there? You can't divide over skin color. You can't divide over cultural practice. You stand on Jesus. You stand on the word of God. We live united as a brand new thing, as a temple to the Lord. God unites all peoples of all backgrounds in the gospel. God takes all of us that he unites, no matter who we are, no matter what we've been, and he makes us citizens of a brand new nation, members of a new family, stones in a new house, living bricks in a beautiful living temple that grows to the glory of God. And what do we do with a truth like that? Well, I guess it depends who you are. If you're not yet in Jesus, I would urge you first and foremost, turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Be saved. Listen to me, friends. If you're here this morning, whether I know you personally or whether I've never spent any time with you whatsoever, I urge you, if you are unforgiven, believe in Jesus. Run to him for mercy and be saved. If you need help to understand what that means, come talk to me. Come talk to an elder right away. Believe in Jesus. Ask him for mercy. Yield control of your life to the Savior. Now, if you are a Christian, and I'm going to guess most of you are because you're sitting here on a Sunday morning, stand on the Word of God. That's what defines us. That's the foundation. We are not defined by who we once were. We're not defined by what we've done in our pasts. 
We are not defined by what others have done to us in our pasts. We are, in Christ, new, clean, a family, a temple. So submit to the word of God completely in all things so that you can stand firm on the foundation, the cornerstone of which is Christ. And this text, Christians ought to help you to battle against anyone or any philosophy that would introduce division into the body of Christ. In our world today, there are people falling prey to a thinking that would separate Christians by ethnicity once again. By the way, does that seem hard for you to fathom? Are you like, yeah, I see that all over the place. It should feel crazy. There are people that are writing articles and writing books and speaking in conferences and defining themselves as white Christians, black Christians, Hispanic Christians, Asian Christians. But can you not see that in the Word of God, all of those labels are removed in Christ? We are Christians. We're the people of God. We're one new family. We're one new ethnicity. I'm sure in the first century that Jews could have said to Gentiles that, the, that you owe the Jews special treatment for the suffering that the Jews faced under Roman oppression. Wouldn't that have seemed fair? I'm sure that there were Gentiles who grew up and lived in and around the land of Judah who could have said the Jewish Christians owed them special treatment because the Jewish Christians, the Jews were harsh in the way they treated the Gentiles. And don't you think that if God wanted us to focus on that kind of thing, he could have written that down in the holy word of God? But God tells us time and time again. Read Ephesians. Read Colossians. Read Galatians. Read Hebrews. We are no longer separated by ethnicity of any sort. We are not separated by nationality. We're not separated by history. For goodness sake, in the book of Philemon, Paul tells Philemon, I want you to ignore the debt that Onesimus owes you. Instead, I want you to welcome Onesimus as a brother. There, Paul took a former slave and a former slave owner, told them to forgive their past wrongs, and now they're supposed to become family. Don't define yourself by your ethnicity. Now, I'm not saying that if you've got a culture to ditch it, I'm not telling you to adopt my culture. Your culture probably has better food than my culture has. I'm not telling you to change your musical style for me. Unless your music's really bad, but that's, you know. But don't define yourself by your ethnicity. Don't define yourself by who oppressed you in your past. Don't define yourself as something other than other believers. Well, you're this kind of Christian, but I'm that kind of Christian. Instead, follow the word. We were separated. God made us one with Christ. We were far off. God brought us near both to himself and to one another. We were enemies. God made us family. We were disconnected. God builds us together into one unified temple. 
Don't you see that the way for us to be most glorifying to God on this earth is to love God and love one another? That has always been the law of God. It remains the law of God. And the only way for us to do so is to trust Jesus, to be saved, to recognize that in Christ we are all made brand new and we stand together on the foundation of the word of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, it doesn't say the old is something he hangs on to and makes people continue to look at. He says the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let the new come. Let us be the new glorious temple of God, a living temple of living stones, united in the word, united in Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me?